Welcome to the Soybean Pod, brought to you by South Dakota soybean farmers and their checkoff. I'm Tom Stever, discussing the incredible soybean, the people who grow it, and why that crop is so important. Farmers face occasional challenges of pushback from people who think the U.S. food system is broken. Any articulate voice defending the system is a breath of fresh air for agriculture. Ray Starling is one of those voices. Starling, a former National FFA officer and former White House and Capitol Hill agricultural advisor, is now with the North Carolina Chamber of Commerce, as well as with Aimpoint Research that works with the food and ag sector. He speaks frequently to audiences about trends in the food system. What is new? What are some of the coming trends in the food system? First of all, I think we've talked a long time in the sector about the need to do more with less and the fact that more mouths are coming than we are accustomed to feeding. And so I think we all in ag, at least those folks that are not iconoclastic, have agreed, hey, we need a bit of an all of the above strategy in agriculture. We need to obviously keep doing a lot of what we are doing and do it better. And we need to do some new things beyond what we sort of think of as traditional food production. That's to me where the conundrum comes in. And that is that despite that recognition that we're going to need more protein, more grain, more bread, more food of whatever category over the course of the next 20 to 30 years, there are still a lot of people that look at the productivity success we have today and essentially say, hey, you're doing it wrong. Big ag has failed us in a number of ways is the argument that we hear. I obviously think that is overstated. We definitely have things we need to improve upon, as any industry does. But in terms of what is new, to me, a lot of it is a lot of interest in the world of ag today because people are walking around with an impression that somehow the system as it exists today is broken. Uh, and so that's given rise, I think, to a level of an outside investment, to a level of outside influence, and to a level of outside ideas that really we haven't seen in American ag since World War II. You pointed out that there are highly educated people on both sides of the issue as to whether the food system is broken. Where do we happen to be in the line of reasoning right now as to whether or not the food system is broken? I thought the word you were going to use there, Tom, was where do we happen to be in alignment? And so that's where my head was. But I like your turn of phrase. Where do we happen to be in the line of reasoning? And that's a harder question, if you ask me, because I think reason and empirical evidence really only supports thoroughly one side of this debate. And that is the conclusion or the side of the debate that would conclude that American agriculture in particular has been extraordinarily successful in doing exactly what it is that particularly, again, the United States has asked it to do. We have made food very cheap. We have done that in a way that has not burned through excessive resources. In other words, when I think about our greatest victory, it is that we are producing a massive multitude or, or sort of what's the right word, 
multiplication, if you will, of the product that we were producing at the end of World War II. And we've done that without massively increasing inputs. We've actually held them about the same over the course of the last 70 years. And so I think the line of reasoning is in the Aggies' favor that, gosh, we got some things we can do better on, but for the most part, we better not abandon the system that we've been involved in developing over the course of the last 70 years. I hope I've addressed your question. I don't mean to dodge it at all, but I do have to say and disclose, I, I have trouble concluding that the food system's broken. I, I have trouble concluding that this industry is both starving and stuffing people to death at the same time. That level of hyperbole is, is very much a turnoff to me, and it's hard for me to take it seriously. Let's go back to how this all began. There obviously is an argument as to whether the food system is broken. Where did that start? How did that get going? Well, I think there are two big answers to that question. One of them is, I think there are concerted efforts among a minority of folks who stand to benefit in some way by attracting people to their point of view, which is that, hey, we got to drastically do something different in the food system. So I think there are actors who personally have a view that they are pushing in a number of different forums, and I'll back up in a moment and kind of go through those forums. I think that's one big bucket. I think people are actively pushing the needle and pushing forward this narrative. On the other side, I think there are a lot of cultural forces that are at work that make this narrative really easy to perpetuate. And so my favorite examples there on the cultural side are a lot of times in the ag space, we'll have a tendency to say things like, oh, well, you know, people don't understand us anymore because nobody grew up on a farm. Or it's a very small percentage, of course, of the population that grew on a farm. That's true. That is definitely accurate to say. But in reality, most people didn't grow up around production of any format of any kind. Mom and dad worked in education or they worked in the bank or they worked in a larger area of financial services. They worked in insurance. Now, again, I'm not writing off the United States manufacturing and production capability. I feel very much that we are still a manufacturing nation. But obviously, a lot of those jobs in the manufacturing space have become more automated. And so we've got fewer people in plants, per se, as a percentage of the population. And so we don't think, I don't think, culturally about, hey, what does it take to get that fruit or that vegetable or that processed food into that box at the grocery store? We just sort of have this mentality that, hey, I can open the app, I can push the button, and the product will get to me by tomorrow morning or within an hour when an Uber Eats driver drops it off. There's just this lacking thing in our culture today to think about how complex and complicated the food system is. And therefore, it's easy to, to say, oh, it ought to be different. It ought to be rearranged in a way that suits my proclivities. On the cultural side, and there's more I could say there, but I think that's a really good example is we're a consuming country to the extent that you classified today's modern consumer, you would say that they know much more about consuming than they do about producing. And so I think that's one of the cultural shifts that we're working our way through. And then go back to that first idea, people pushing ideas in forum or in fora. I don't know, Tom, what the plural of forum is, but you know, you see it a bit in academia. You certainly see it in the legal world. You see it in government. You see it in the media. These are all places where 
actors are actively pushing this narrative that you and I have sort of talked about. Well, let's talk about the productivity of the U.S. farmer. You have cited several graphs that show just a dramatic upward climb in the productivity of U.S. agriculture in general. Talk about that and how that contributes to the fixing, if it needs to be fixed, of the food system. I think that's foundational, Tom, because I think if we're going to enter this argument about the state of the current food system and whether it's good or bad, I mean, our best evidence is the productivity that we have, even while inputs have remained constant. I think if you look at, and I know what you're thinking about and talking about with those visuals, those graphics, you look at soybean bushels per acre, you look at corn bushels per acre, you look at forage crops bushels per acre, you look at feed conversion in protein crops and animals, if you will, the amount of feed it takes to put into that animal to get a pound of sustained gain. All of those numbers tell an impressive story about what we've done in in American agriculture. And again, I think it's funny, we also use the phrase, and I in my book, I do sort of poke at this a little bit. This always makes me feel a little uncomfortable because we'll say something like, hey, we feed the world. Well, the United States, in terms of productivity, on our best day, we produce about 10% of the food consumed around the world. Arguably, that number changes, of course, year in and year out, depending on what markets do, depending on what weather does. But we do send food all over the world, no doubt about that. And look, I'm just as prideful and happy about what we do in ag as the next person. I'll tell you that. I'll defend it as long as the day is long. But, you know, to say, oh, we feed the world, that's probably... You know, that might be going a little bit too far if we're saying just stick with the facts here. But with that said, and I had this conversation with somebody else last week, we really do in the ag sector in the United States, we do contribute massively to the productivity gains around the world in ag because a lot of that technology that we're developing here, a lot of the innovation that we're deploying here is being picked up and used or deployed somewhere else, right? I mean, there is a reason that the European chemical companies and the European seed companies have massive operations in the United States and massive research operations on that point. There is a reason that Chinese researchers have dug up seeds in fields in the United States because they're trying to figure out how to get access to that same technology that we have. And so I would just say it's one thing to look at the charts, but it's another thing to think a little bit deeper about. So where does that come from? Well, it comes from the fact that we've made massive investments on the public and the private side in terms of agricultural research. And that is really added to us being the envy of the world in terms of productivity gains, because we've we've had a farm team, if you will, to not overdo the metaphor. You know, we've had a farm team way of developing the next generation of agriculture in our country. Let's take a look at the backside of this, at the amount that the American public spends on their food today. That seems to have gone down over the years. Yeah, and I would just be an humble, this is, I think, is a well-worn statistic that we, all of us in ag, are, are prone to cite and prone to point to. But looking around the world, and particularly looking even only in in developed countries, we spend a lower percentage of our disposable income on food than any other country in the world. Uh, and that percentage typically is around the 10 to 12 percent mark. It will be interesting, Tom, to see during this period of COVID and, and high inflation, particularly high inflation in the food space, 
how does that change? In other words, I think we're just now beginning to get data to look at, to say, okay, well, in 2022, what did the average American spend as a percentage of their disposable income on food? So that number may be a little higher for a year or two, some of this noise that we're seeing in the inflation space. But still, you know, we're going to end up faring far better than many of our friends around the world. And so, A, I think that's something to be proud of. And we do cite that statistic a lot and, and do point to it. But there again, going kind of back to the central theme in this farmers versus foodies debate, what is there to argue with? about that. I mean, how in the world could someone take the position that that is not a good thing? With that said, we've seen very thoughtful people, very educated people, very smart people say things like, oh, to cut down on food waste, food ought to cost more. Well, I get it. And that's not mean-spirited to say, I don't think. I'm not trying to impugn someone that would make that argument. But I don't know how you make food cost more without impacting all of those people that are actually at the margins of society and already have trouble paying for food in a country where we pay less of our disposable income than any other country in the world. So to take that statistic, A, we are the market leader in terms of price, our domestic food prices low as anyone's. With that said, we've still got 41 million people in this country on food stamps. We've literally got, you know, a sixth of the population that has to have some sort of government aid to put food on the table. So anything that would make food more expensive, any idea that would do that, much less intentionally do that, seems to me like really bad public policy and would be the exact opposite of what we've tried to do in the sector for the last 70 or 80 years. So what do we do about it? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's funny, when I was working on the book, I got about three-fourths through and I was like, oh, wait, at the end of the day, they're going to ask me to make some recommendations here. Like, I, it's not enough to just identify this problem. We've got to talk about, you know, what do we do? How do we fix it? Great question. One of the things you will hear me say over and over and over again is that the insiders, those who work inside agriculture, those who have capital at risk, those who have actually grown things that other people eat, those that have laid in bed at night and worried about whether it's going to rain the next two or three days or whether it's going to stop raining in the next two or three days. That is the group that has got to lead the conversation about the next generation of agriculture. It cannot be led by our critics who actually haven't been involved in food production. And what's interesting about this, Tom, is that happens, I mean, that's almost an American thing to do, right? Like some of the people that are the fiercest critics of our energy sector have never worked in the energy sector. They've never transmitted a kilowatt of power. They've never generated a kilowatt of power. They've certainly used a lot of kilowatts of power. And I see that parallelism here in agriculture. A lot of our critics want to tell us how to do it and they actually don't really know how to feed people. And so I say all that in a long-winded way to say the insiders have got to step up and lead this conversation. That's one answer. Well, you're probably saying, well, that's pretty vague, Ray. Of course, ag's got to be leaders. How do we do that? Well, I think a part of that is looking back in these different places where outsiders are beginning to dominate the policy discussion and we've got to address that. We've got to put ourselves in that spot as opposed to letting them have that mantle. So when we look at the media today and we look at what's happening to the front page of our 
newspapers. And if anybody is listening under 30 years old, we can explain later what a newspaper is. But the idea that a publication would merely sell out its front page, whether that front page is in print or whether it's on a website, to a you know a nonprofit or some sort of organization that is pushing a narrative that's negative about agriculture. I mean, if all you've got to do is go buy that space, and in the world we're living in today, that's absolutely what we're seeing in the media world. We got to play ball. We got to do some of that. We got to push back. When you look at the political category. Fewer and fewer of our folks are actually serving in office, right? I mean, just it really goes hand in hand with the fact that there are fewer and fewer folks involved in production agriculture. It makes sense then that we would have fewer and fewer folks involved in elected office because there are just fewer of them. When you look at academia, when you think about what law professors are saying about agriculture, we've got to be in those rooms. We have got to be teaching those classes. We have got to be assigning the readings and the courses, if you will, not folks who are critics or at least who are completely one-sided critics about the industry. So I I think we got to be smarter about where we deploy. And then the last thing I'll say, I have a couple of ideas, but I'll truncate it here. We organize ourselves really well in agriculture vertically meaning the soybean folks get together and really focus on the soybean problems. The corn folks, the same way. The cotton folks in my home state of North Carolina, the sweet potato folks have a strong lobby and a strong trade association. But what we don't do as well is organize horizontally across the industry. It is rare that you have a working group of a pig farmer, a soybean farmer, a cotton farmer, a sweet potato farmer, a dairy farmer, all working on cross-sectional agricultural challenges together. And so what that means is at the end of the day, when we've got a biotech problem, we're smart enough to develop the biotech solution, but our regulatory system is so awful we can't deploy it. Or we've got the resources to grow the crop, but we can't get the labor to actually get it out of the field. These are not problems that belong to one policy vertical in agriculture. They belong to the entire industry. And until we figure out how to leverage our work horizontally and lean on each other and make progress together in that regard, I actually think our critics are going to continue to run circles around us. That's kind of my recommendations of things we've got to focus on doing. The book's on Amazon. You can go buy it or you can just listen to this podcast and you'll kind of get the gist of it. But it is out there and I enjoy being out on the road talking about it. I think you and I ran into each other at the Missouri Farm Bureau Convention. I've had a chance to be in a lot of rooms since then talking about the messages in the book. I look forward to every one of those, and, and it's been warmly received. So that's a lot of fun. What year were you an FFA national officer? 96, 97. So I was both elected and got to do my retiring address in Kansas City. This was prior to the convention moving to Louisville. That definitely dates me. My glory days were out in Kansas City. And, mm. and most FFA students don't even remember that. Ray Starling is with the North Carolina Chamber of Commerce and Aimpoint Research. He speaks frequently on food and ag issues. The Soybean Pod is brought to you by South Dakota Soybean Farmers and their checkoff. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and at sdsoybean.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Tom Stever. <laughs>